welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. Now, those of you who have tuned into this podcast before know that this podcast is pretty new, and so far it's been basically a channel for event audio, recordings of the events that we have here in Washington, D.C. But the goal has always been to add to the podcast more traditional podcast features, actual discussions of current legal issues and developments in the court and around administration. And for the first episode along those lines, there's really nobody better to invite onto the show than my friend Nicholas Bagley, a professor of law at the University of Michigan. Nick and his co-authors and his colleague, Julian Davis Mortensen, have a new draft paper out. It's titled Delegation at the Founding. It's a criticism or a challenge to some of the arguments that have been made in favor of a new or revised non-delegation doctrine, most prominently in Justice Gorsuch's dissent in the recent Gundy case. Um, But beyond that, this paper is a deep dive into the history of constitutional structure, public administration, and the debates surrounding the non-delegation doctrine. Now, before I forget, uh, Nick Bagley is a professor of law at Michigan. He writes on administrative law, regulatory theory, and health law. He previously served in the Justice Department's Civil Division, and he clerked for Judge David Tatel on the D.C. Circuit and Justice John Paul Stevens, who we'll talk about a little bit towards the end for his own thoughts on non-delegation. But without any further ado, Nick, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. I'm really happy to be here. Now, I suspect a lot of people who tune into this podcast will have already read your article. It's already gotten a lot of attention and some and, and, and comments on the Yale JREG blog and elsewhere. But for those of you, for those in our audience who haven't read it yet, what's the basic uh, core of your argument? Yeah, so the Justice Gorsuch's dissent in Gundy really rests on the claim that there are certain kinds of powers that Congress can't delegate. And the reason that he he knows this, he says, is because the founders were committed to the view that, you know, legislative powers were vested in Congress and couldn't be just handed over to the executive. Um, So the kind of bid to stitch the non-delegation doctrine into our law is really a, a claim about originalism, about what the founders knew and or what the founders believed at the founding. Um, and so my co-author, Julian, and I, we thought, well, you know, if the question is what the founders thought, you know, we can take a look at that and see if the claims that Justice Gorsuch and other originalists have made withstand historical scrutiny. Um, neither of us is an originalist, but certainly history is not off bounds to those of us who might take a different approach to constitutional interpretation. And I got to say, we were kind of surprised uh, at just how little evidence there was to support the claim that a non-delegation existed at the founding. And to the contrary, how much evidence suggested both that the founders were completely comfortable with the notion that legislative power could be delegated and that early Congresses, in fact, did it all the time with nary a constitutional objection raised. Um, and the paper simply sort of walks through that history and lays out the arguments. And we conclude, you know, we're pretty blunt about this, that there just wasn't a non-delegation doctrine at the founding. And to be honest, I don't I don't think the question is that close. 
Yeah, that's actually it's funny. That's literally the closing line of your article. And um, as a fan of law review articles that are fun to read, I just want to say. Anybody who's intimidated by the idea of reading a law review article, this is not an intimidating article. It's very, <laughs> scholar, it's very scholarly, but it's written in a style that's worth reading. Uh, the last line uh, of your article, you say, after sort of re, 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 reiterating all of your arguments, you say, the truth is that there was no non-delegation doctrine at the founding, and the question isn't close. Now, before we, we unpack your argument, let's just talk a little bit about the argument that you now find yourself responding to, or at least in the first instant, this, this dissenting opinion by Justice Gorsuch in the Gundy case. My guess is anybody tuning into this podcast already knows about the Gundy case. Yeah. Uh, but in, you know, in short, it was the non-delegation challenge to the, the Sex Offender Registration uh, Notification Act. Uh, there, was a, there was a delegation of power to the Attorney General or at least it left him with some discretion to decide how to apply the requirements of the law retroactively, mm-hmm. or at least to, to people, or at least proactively to people who had already been convicted and had served their sentence. Uh, and in this, there was a, a fight over non-delegation. This question in the Supreme Court over whether the statute delegated legislative power to the Attorney General. The majority, in an opinion written by Justice Kagan, said no. There's there's no non-delegation problem here at all under existing doctrine. Justice Gorsuch didn't disagree so much over existing doctrine so much as he disagreed over the sufficiency of the doctrine itself. Mm-hmm. He said that the court needed to go back to the drawing board on non-delegation. As you point out, this is a theme that he had raised in Tenth Circuit opinions. And it's actually is similar to a theme he's raised in a, you might call the doctrinal cousin of this, which is called the void for vagueness doctrine, mm-hmm. um, at where Gorsuch uh, – criticized uh, statutes that he thought were written in, in unconstitutionally broad terms. Um, how would what's, what's the best description of, of Gorsuch's argument, if you want to put it in a, in a nutshell? Yeah, well, I think, I think Gorsuch's argument is difficult to disentangle from a line of originalist scholarship that has been pushing this direction for the past couple of decades. Um, the notion that the non-delegation doctrine was sort of a central feature of the founding was not a, a point that was substantiated in the sort of originalist literature, really until the early 2000s. And, and then it was articles by the likes of Gary Lawson and Philip Hamburger and um, uh, Cy Prakash and Larry Alexander that really pushed the point that, no, you know, there was a principle at the founding. You couldn't fob off certain powers to the executive. Now, these authors disagree with each other a little bit on, on what counts as an impermissible delegation. Uh-huh. But the version of the non-delegation argument that Justice Gorsuch espouses largely tracks the one that Philip Hamburger puts out in a recent book. And it goes like this. He says, look, there are, of course, certain questions that the legislature can give to the executive branch to resolve. Right. Discretion is part of what it means to execute the law. But there are limits when it comes to big, important decisions. Congress has got to make some of them. Can't just hand that responsibility off to the executive branch. And that's especially so where the executive branch has the power to adopt rules of conduct for private persons, right? Those sorts of delegations where the executive has broad policymaking authority to tell people how to go about their lives, that's the kind of delegation that Justice Gorsuch says is anathema to the Constitution. Other kinds of delegations where you give the executive branch a lot of authority to kind of tell you his you know the, the, to tell agency subordinates how to go about their jobs um, or maybe even delegations in areas of intrinsic executive power so maybe with respect to the military or foreign affairs 
those are the kinds of areas where delegations might be more permissible. But when it comes to the core of what Justice Gorsuch believes the legislative power to be, that can't be delegated to the executive branch. As you, as you mentioned, Justice Gorsuch isn't the first person on the court to raise these concerns, even just in recent years. Um, I guess depending on how you define recent, Justice Thomas raised some of the sim, some similar themes in a brief concurring opinion in the Whitman uh, versus uh, American Trucking case, the EPA case from 2001, where mm-hmm. he said that maybe the current doctrine, the so-called intelligible principle standard isn't really enough to capture the full non-delegation doctrine. He said that the issue hadn't been briefed, so he'll await a future case. We get about a decade and a half later in the uh, the Amtrak case where he sketched out a much more thorough version of this argument, really tracking the book you mentioned. Philip Hamburger's book is Administrative Law Unlawful. Um, I think there might be a slight difference between Gorsuch's opinion and Thomas and Hamburger's opinion, I might be overreading this, but whereas Hamburger and Thomas, I think, pretty categorically say that the executive branch has no power to make binding r- rules that mm-hmm. bind the, the public, Gorsuch recalibrates this and says that Congress has to make the major policy decisions regarding uh, mm-hmm. rules for, the, for private person's conduct, uh, but they can delegate the power to fill in the details. And mm-hmm. it, I don't, I don't want to overstate. I don't want to overstate that difference. I might be overreading it. But I think there's a little bit of a difference. It's interesting that Thomas joined Gorsuch, but in any event, Gorsuch's opinion made waves not particularly because he wrote it, because after all, he's been writing this for a few years, and not because Justice Thomas joined it. He's been saying these things for many years, but because Chief Justice Roberts joined it uh, without reservation. Uh, Justice Alito didn't join it, but in a separate opinion said he'd be interested in in perhaps reconsidering the non-delegation doctrine. Um, he'd at least you know be interested in hearing a case on it. And then uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, issued a, an opinion not long thereafter in a different case saying that he might be interested in the issue too. He wasn't in the Gundy case. He joined the court too late. But you now have five justices who seem to be calling for uh, a, a reinvigorated non-delegation doctrine, perhaps. And it's the opinion that's launched a thousand law review articles. We're going to have a, <laughs> uh, we're going to have a, uh, a workshop uh, here at the Gray Center in the spring and a conference in the fall on some of these non-delegation issues. But I know we're not the only ones. This is uh, sort of the hot issue in administrative law, precisely because it goes down to first principles. You, you I, I think I remember you and I had a couple of exchanges either by email or, or Twitter or some, somewhere else frivolous um, right around the time Gundy was decided, mm-hmm. um, where you, you had expressed real concerns about how this approach could destabilize government. Um, in fact, you had a New York Times op-ed on the subject, didn't you? Um, I did, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, we'll get back to the destabilization point maybe at the end, but let's just stick with the, with the, the doctrinal arguments and just go right back to the heart of your paper. You, your paper really focuses on the history of this, the conceptual history that the framers, the founding generation inherited or built upon, the writings of, of Locke, Montesquieu, and others. Um, Rousseau is in there. Uh, and then you talk about the way that the framers themselves actually talked about these issues or similar issues and the ways that they didn't talk about them not just during the Constitutional Convention, but in the practice of the, the pre-constitutional con- uh, Continental Congress. Um, and then you continue through the constitutional debates and, and so on. 
uh, it's a lot of material and it's impossible to summarize it here, but do you want to just give a couple of, of examples or basic points about why the, the constitutional history you think um, – just let's just begin with the concepts of legislative yeah. and executive power. Why that doesn't say what, what current advocates for non-delegation say – and I, I don't want to filibuster, but just one last point, I guess the most mm-hmm. important point at all. As you point out, there is no non-delegation clause in the Constitution – all of this discussion is just an inference from the fact that Articles 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution begin by vesting legislative, executive, and judicial power in Congress or the president or the courts. And everything else is an inference from there about subdelegation. And so your article is an attempt to refute that inference. Say you're drawing the wrong inference. You're overreading this. So I'm, I'm sorry, I feel about no, it, but, no, no. but let's talk about just those concepts of legislative and executive power and why you don't think they mean what the, the modern non-delegation advocates think they mean. Yeah, I think I think where we come down on this is that the, the founders had a, a fairly straightforward, pretty intuitive and pretty simple vision about what those terms in the Constitution meant. And I should emphasize here that I'm really drawing on work that my co-author Julian has done. Um, in kind of chasing down the meaning of executive power at the time of the founding. Mm-hmm. Um, when the founders talked about legislative power, they didn't have a hyper-refined view about it being the authority to make binding rules for the public. Um, they had a much more practical conception that it was just the ability to kind of set the sort of set the path of society, to come up with a plan that, that we as a country would adhere to and abide by. Um, and the executive branch was thought to be the instrument for carrying out the instructions of Congress. Um, and I think we've sort of lost track of that very simple kind of approach to thinking about the executive and legislative power. Um, and a lot of the originalist arguments depend on the notion that there are some things that are intrinsically executive in nature. And thus Congress maybe can't legislate or can only legislate um, if it speaks very clearly uh, and that there are some powers that are, you know, that that where they're exclusively legislative, so only the legislature can make that kind of decision. And, you know, I'll be honest, there's just no evidence for it at the founding. Those concepts were much more practical. They were um, not infused with all of this kind of layer, these layers of meaning that 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 we sort of find in the scholarship. They were much more practical, much simpler. Legislation was the ability, the legislative power was the ability to set rules for society. And the executive power was the, the, the power to carry out those instructions. It's not really much more complicated than that. You don't just argue that there's a lack of evidence in support of the, we'll call it non-delegation reformers argument. That's right. No. Uh, you, you actually say that, that there is evidence and the evidence cuts against them, that the evidence indicates that the, that the argument for a, a new non-delegation doctrine is at odds with the founding generation. Yeah, the founding generation didn't have the same kind of conception of what these powers meant that, that we come to. You know, when I was in law school, I learned that there were certain core executive powers and Congress couldn't intrude on those. And that actually doesn't appear to be the case, at least not as a matter of the original understanding of the Constitution. Congress got to say what rules would govern in society. And as long as an exclusive power was not in fact committed to the executive branch in the Constitution, those rules would bind the executive. And there was no argument that there was some intrinsic executive power 
to overcome those pieces of legislation. By the same token, right, the legislative power is a much more practical concept than the notion to create rules that bind the public. It's just the notion to create, to, to craft the instructions that will bind society generally. Yeah. Um, and once you have that less rigid picture in view, it becomes very hard to make sense of the claim that there was some core intrinsic legislative power that everyone understood Congress couldn't delegate to the executive branch. It was a much more practical you know, part of what we're trying to do is encourage people to think a little less hard about this stuff. The Constitution was really a practical document and it was understood in those terms. Now, I consider myself an originalist um, and, and I, I, I would count myself among those who are definitely keen to see this reexamination of non-delegation. I don't know where I end up on the exact line that I think is the right constitutional line. And, and I've even written a little bit um, just very, very uh, preliminarily, um, which is to say a blog post, um, sort of reiterating some of the concerns that Justice Scalia had about the line drawing here. Um, Justice, uh, sorry, James Madison had similar thoughts in Federalist 37, which maybe we'll get back to later. It's my favorite Federalist paper, so I don't want to pass up a chance to talk about, about it. But let me just – some basic questions. It's true that the, the non-delegation – sorry, the Constitution doesn't have an express non-delegation clause. Um, but as advocates for the non-delegation doctrine say, the, the th first three articles do begin with vesting, um, mm -hmm. the vesting of the legislative power in Congress. If there really isn't a categorical difference between executive, legislative, and judicial power, then why would the framers start Article 1 by saying the legislative power is vested in Congress? Why wouldn't they just lay out all the sort of procedural and, and specific substantive powers that are contained in Article 1 and then just leave the, the sort of the, the, the reference to legislative power out? Isn't their, their use of that term, doesn't that suggest that they did have a more specific concept of legislative power as distinct from executive power? Yes, it, they, they did, but it was much thinner than a kind of robust conception of, of that, that has moved into the literature. And what I mean by that is the legislature retained the authority to set the rules that would govern society. Mm -hmm. And that was true whether or not at one point it happened to delegate some authority to the president. It was true whether or not some different authority had been delegated to the courts. At the end of the day, the power to set rules resided in Congress. Yeah. And that's what that instruction entails, is that, is that at the end of the day, they're the ones in charge. And so I do think that there's a way of making sense of that vesting clause by saying, not that it's empty, but that it does prohibit Congress from closing up shop, from saying, Listen, uh, we're going to create a uh, we're going to give all of our authority to the president heretofore and none of our future enactments will have any force or effect. And we're all going home. Yeah. Um, and there's some support for that interpretation of the Constitution in the founding era materials. There's not a lot, but there are at least a couple of contemporary theorists who read Locke and his famous you know, in exhortation against the transfer of legislative powers to mean exactly that, to say, yeah, Congress can't close up shop. It's got to be the one at the end of the day who, who gets to make the decision. But, but I think that's all it means. And certainly there's no evidence in the founding era history to suggest that the legislative power entailed something more uh, rigorous than that. And when you when you say close up shop, you do mean close up shop permanently. That was the yes. point that they could not irrevocably. Congress could, uh, I'm, am I being fair to say that under your theory, Congress, they might not be able to close up shop forever, 
but they could put up a sign on the door saying gone fishing or and and we'll be back in five years and as long as they had as long as they um either explicitly preserved the power to 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 claim back their their legislative power or at least they didn't expressly disclaim it then they'd be okay yeah well i would say i would say gone fishing so long as i mean they couldn't claim that we're done for five years what they can do is is say, yes, for now, we are handing this power off to the executive branch, but we always remain on the scene to superintend, to oversee, and to potentially check what it is the executive branch does. Now, I want to be really clear about something right here, yeah. which is that I have a theory about, we have a theory, my, my co-author and I, about what the original understanding was. But you have to remember that original understanding was crafted against the backdrop of a, an assumption that there wouldn't be political parties Mm-hmm. In the sense that we have them today. And it was crafted against the backdrop of, uh, you know, a, a, an extraordinary level of, act, of, of state legislative activity in the 1780s and before that. Yeah. So the founders were, 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 were in an environment where there was no particular reason to think that delegations would ever be a serious problem. And mm-hmm. they weren't attuned to the problem when they crafted the Constitution. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not a problem today. I happen not to be a fan of the non-delegation doctrine. I think it'd be a really bad idea to bring it back. Um, but I think there are good, valid, viable constitutional arguments for the doctrine and reasonable people can disagree about them. Yeah. What I don't think is that those arguments can be defended in an originalist register. I think yeah. you can you can be an adherent of the non-delegation doctrine because you're nervous about the way that partisan politics makes it really hard for Congress to draw back power that it's given to the executive. I hear that. Um, but I don't think that was the originalist. That, that was the view of the founders um, in 1789. And, you know, I think if you're going to do it, like I, I would want to be honest about the about what's sort of driving the, the revitalization of the doctrine. Yeah. No, the, this podcast is, is not nearly long enough to really do justice to the examples you have. Uh, you talk about the legislative debates after the Constitution over post roads, the location of the capital, some delegations of authority for dealing with with Native American tribes and and others. And you look at the pre-constitutional history under the under the Continental Congress, the handling of the Northwest Territories and so on. Actually, the Northwest Territories is an interesting bridge case. It comes yes. up when they first pass it, and then after the Constitution, when Congress sort of re passes it summarily. Um, but I want to, I want to point out just a couple of, of examples that, that I've always struck me. One, and this is, this, I'm not the first one to draw this. A, a million people have pointed this out that among the, the examples of state law that very closely preceded the constitution was the Massachusetts constitution of 1780, where there is something that comes maybe a little closer to a non-delegation clause, um, a provision, uh, that says that, uh, not just that the legislative Power shall be vested in, in the legislature, the executive power in the governor, and the judicial power in the courts. But then it goes on to say, and none of the branches shall um, sh- shall ever uh, wield any of the other powers. I, I'm, I'm botching the the, the the phrase, but it's something close to that. As I read your paper, I, I, I tried to think back: what would the people who wrote the Massachusetts Constitution, which is obviously just a small a subset of the American public at the time, but what would they have thought of this non-delegation by adding that by by adding that extra command about the executive branch not wielding the legislative power uh, and so on? I mean, they did have a conceptual or categorical difference between these things, 
And I'm not sure that the answer is just they didn't want the governor to temporarily wield the powers that that were once wielded by a, the legislature. There seemed to be something more of an ongoing duty there. I, that's that's sort of a, a muddled way of putting it. But did you give any thought to the to the Massachusetts provision? Because that usually gets bandied about in, in yeah. the non-delegation literature. Well, there's actually even a better example, which is that James Madison tried to stitch that particular provision into the Bill of Rights. Right, um, right. And that was voted down. So that language was floating around a lot. The notion that there were executive powers and legislative powers and there the twain shall meet. Exactly how that would be operationalized and exactly what that would mean to the founding. Not entirely sure. And it was a contested provision. I mean, it was rejected because there were those in Congress who thought it would be destructive uh, of the Constitution, in part because there are so many ways in which executive powers and legislative powers do tend to overlap in practice. Um, what I can say for sure is that nobody took that language and ran with it in opposing all sorts of laws that delegated extensive authority to the legislative branch. So if the founders thought that their kind of commitment to the notion that the legislative power shall not be wielded by the executive and blah, 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 um, if there was any such a, such commitment, I'm not sure they thought that commitment entailed anything in particular about the non-delegation doctrine. And if they did, you'd expect to find some evidence of it. So, you know, I, I hear that you can sort of look at a couple of pieces of evidence like that in isolation and tell a story about how maybe a non-delegation doctrine kind of lurked behind their thoughts. But actually, there were lots. I mean, this is a really evidence rich environment. There are tens of thousands of pages of pre-constitutional debate, tens of thousands of pages of post-constitutional debate about the meaning of the Constitution. And the number of times when something like the non-delegation doctrine rears its, its head are trivial. And even when it does, it does so at most in a glancing way. And when the arguments are made forcefully that there was a delegation problem, as they were a couple of times in mm -hmm. the early Congresses, they're rejected. So yeah, there's a provision like that lurking out there, but I don't think you can freight it with a kind of importance that uh, some people would like to, to freight it with. Now, how useful is the pre-constitutional history, say the specifically within the Constitutional Congress under the Articles of Confederation, given that in that era, the Continental Congress effectively – you know, structurally had both the legislative power and the executive power. There was no executive separate from the Continental Congress, and the Continental Congress relied on a series of subcommittees and, and, and commissions and so on to function as both the national legislature and the national executive. That's, that's a quite a different context from the, the, stu the subsequent constitution where you do have a, a structural design that distinguishes the executive from the legislature. Yeah, so uh, I will say a few things about that. The first is the key point to understand about the Confederation Congress is that itself was a, that it itself was a creature of the delegation of legislative power. So the states in creating the Confederation delegated their own powers, their own legislative powers to the Confederation <laughs> Congress. Right. So one of the significant points about the Confederation Congress is just to point out how comfortable um, the founders were with these kinds of, of delegations of legislative authority. Um, the second point is that well, in but, fact, but, the but isn't sorry not to interrupt, but oh. I, I mean our own Constitution in a sense is a delegation of legislative power from the people to Congress, right? 
Sure, sure, yeah. absolutely. And already then you can see that the doubt and our point in the paper is simply to highlight all the ways in which whether you're talking about delegating from the people to Congress or from the states to Congress or from Congress to individuals, these delegations were happening all the time. Um, so it wouldn't have struck them as odd to say that Congress could delegate legislative power so long, of, co of course, as Congress remained in control at the end of the day of, uh, you know, kind of the, 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 you know, their ability to chart the country's course. Yeah, um, I cut you off in the middle of that. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, but I will say on, uh, with, as to the, the distinction between a, a, a Congress that, you know, a Confederation Congress didn't have a sharply distinct uh, executive branch. I'll just say there were lots of individuals and commissions that the Confederation Congress delegated authority to. And the most conspicuous among them is the delegation of authority to the governor and to three judges in the Northwest Territory to craft an entire body of rules, criminal and civil, for people who lived in that territory without any kind of boundaries at all. So, yeah. so yes, the Confederation Congress did, there was no executive branch in the way we understood it post 1789. But there certainly were delegations to officials carrying out the instructions of the Congress. And that's why we think it's it's the other. The reason we think it's important to note that is just that that there's no particular reason to think that the con the, the the adoption of the Constitution worked an evulsive change to that longstanding practice of delegating legislative power. Yeah. A couple other uh, sources you Died. I just want to poke on them a little bit. One is the the famous, I mean, at least to us, famous case of Wayman versus Southern. This is Chief Justice yeah. Marshall's early 1825 decision on uh, on uh, with a non delegation issue, and I'll just read the quote really very quickly. Um, Marshall writes, the line has not been exactly drawn, which separates those important subjects, which must be entirely regulated by the legislature itself, from those of less interest, in which a general provision may be made, and the power to given to those who are to act under such general provisions to fill up the details. Now, oftentimes advocates for a, a stronger non-delegation doctrine, they point back to this as sort of the, the proto-example of, of non-delegation. Obviously, it comes decades after the founding of the Constitution, but it's by Chief Justice Marshall and still the, the early republic. Is it fair to say you actually – Take, you draw the opposite conclusion from this. You point out the fact that Marshall says the line has not been exactly drawn. You're saying that, that I think that Marshall, in a way, disclaims the idea of a non-delegation doctrine. Is that is that fair? I think what he's saying there is, yes, there are going to be, you know, tough questions about some edge cases, perhaps. Yeah. And beyond that, I don't know what he's what he's I, I think that quote is perfectly consistent with a theory that. Yes, the legislature can't carve itself out of the constitutional design. Yeah. And it's even consistent with the possibility that, that Justice Marshall had a different sort of view kind of lurking in his own mind. Um, yeah. But what I can say for sure is it's really bad if you're an originalist, if this is your best piece of evidence, because it's four decades after the Constitution is adopted and just two years after he wrote that. Justice Story actually issued the unanimous opinion for the Supreme Court in a case involving one of the very first laws to which a genuine non-delegation doctrine, non-delegation argument was raised. And that was a law that allowed the president to call up the militia when he believed there was danger of invasion. And Justice Story said, quote, in our opinion, there is no ground for a doubt that the law is within Congress's constitutional authority. For the power to provide for repelling invasions includes the power to provide against the attempt and danger of invasion 
as the necessary and proper means to effectuate the object. Mm -hmm. The power thus confided by Congress to the president is doubtless of a high and delicate nature, but it is not a power which can be executed without a correspondent responsibility. So he goes out of his way to say the non-delegation objections that are being raised in 1827, they don't make any sense to us at all. And that's, I think, uh, you know, if you have, if if for every wayman, you're going to find a lot more of these kind of weaving away of these non-delegation objections. I should say too, in wayman, the chief justice rejected the non-delegation argument. And it's not until, you know, we don't get uh, actual invalidation of of a law, an act of Congress until the New Deal era. So uh, the notion that there was some fundamental prohibition on delegating powers has to depend on the notion that Congress never tried to delegate its powers before or that for some reason they were never challenged in court. And in fact, Congress delegated powers all the time and litigation was ubiquitous. So I I just I I don't see it. Now, on back to the Wayman case and the the justice story opinion, I've already I just forgot the the name of the story case. Um, Martin against Mott. That's it. Um, You know, I think the the. The likely response and the one I'd offer to your reading of the, of the story opinion is, well, yeah, but this is one of those areas where the subject matter itself was almost inherently part of not just the legislative power, but also the executive power having to do with with uh, the president's power of as commander in chief and his executive yeah. power. Now, you in your paper, you say you, you anticipate and respond to that kind of argument. And you say advocates for a non-delegation doctrine are very good at, at saying, well, this is that exception and this is that exception. And that's actually how you end the paper is sort of rolling through very quickly one last time all the exceptions. But this seems an important exception, right? It does seem one of those areas that Madison might have had in mind in Federalist 37 or what Hamilton discusses in some of the Federalist papers where he says there are some powers that do not sort of admit of easy classification. It could be that the executive head would have this power regardless of whether Congress legislated or not. And therefore, that's why the non-delegation doctrine, uh, the non-delegation issue would go away. Yeah. So the answer is just that there's no – that, that that view doesn't track with the available historical evidence. Yeah. So I refer you to the work that my, my colleague Julian has done on the meaning of executive power at the founding. Yes. And he views that as an empty vessel. He says, look, if you look at the evidence, it's quite clear. There was no intrinsic meaning to the word executive authority as in the sense that there were certain topics that the president had more or less control over. It was simply, I mean, the authority to execute the law was simply that, the authority to execute the law. It didn't mean anything more complicated or more refined. But even better, you know, like I, I get this response and I, I, I actually think the historical evidence is quite clear. It cuts the opposite direction. So <clears throat> the first real sustained non-delegation doctrine objection that you see in the actual sort of annals of Congress comes in the fifth Congress when there is real concern from Republicans in the legislature that the Federalists are going to empower President Adams to create an army that might actually kind of be used to suppress domestic insurrections. Mm-hmm. And you see the non-delegation argument getting raised in connection with a law governing the ability to raise a provisional army. Can President Adams be given the authority constitutionally to call up soldiers when he believes it necessary in the public interest to do so? And that's exactly the kind of area where you think the non-delegation argue, doctrine ought to be at its weakest if you're a believer in the Gandhi descent. That's the kind of place where you'd least expect a non-delegation argument to be raised. But it's the place that the founders thought 
the non-delegation argument was strongest because of their fears of standing armies, because of their fears that that kind of power was so subject to abuse. And I will say those arguments, even when they were made, were rejected. And so, you know, like I understand the notion that maybe there are certain powers that seem intrinsically executive and that seem like we should say that maybe the non-delegation argument would, would apply with a little less force there. But that's just not the way the founders carved the world. And that makes sense, right? Like it was a very different world working from a very different set of assumptions and concerned about a very different set of risks. So the notion that they would have had the same conception of what counted as a core executive power, I think is a lot to ask and in fact is not supported by the historical evidence. Now, I, I do want to say just one other thing about Wayman versus Southern. When I read um, Marshall's line, and again, like you say, Marshall was not at, at, he wasn't present at the creation, so to speak. You know, when he says the the line has not been exactly drawn, which separates those important subjects, uh, that's not to say that the line hasn't been hasn't been uh, inexactly drawn, or that the line shouldn't be drawn eventually. And in some ways, Marshall's quote for me is what calls to mind Federalist 37, which you grapple with. This is Madison. For those who listen who haven't yet uh, read Federalist 37, go out and read it right away. It's the my favorite Federalist paper. Uh, I consider it the flyover country of the Federalist. And being from Iowa, I'm allowed to make that joke uh, as Nick <laughs> being from Michigan. Um, but but here Madison sort of grappling with the inherent vagueness of written law. Um, he talks about the difficulty in the sciences of delineating the various kingdoms of, of animals and so on, the works of nature. But then he says, and you quote, experience has instructed us that no skill in science has yet been able to discriminate and define with sufficient certainty its three great provinces. It's the legislative, executive, and judiciary, or even the privileges and powers of the different legislative branches. Now, again, I draw a somewhat different conclusion or inference from what he's getting at, because when he says the lines haven't been drawn precisely, they haven't been drawn yet, he doesn't say that they shouldn't be drawn eventually. And in fact, the whole point of Federalist 37, as Will Bode uh, wrote in a recent paper, is that for some constitutional subjects, the, the constitutional meaning only becomes clearer over time through the experience of governance. So when I read Federalist 37, I read it for the suggestion that even if there isn't a non-delegation doctrine in the original meaning, there might come to be one or there might come to need to be one over time with the experience of, of government. Yeah. So it's a, it's a provocative claim. I think I could, I could, I think reasonably push back and say, I'm not sure that that's an originalist claim. Oh, I'm not suggesting it is. It's definitely not. Yeah. So, so I want to be clear that our paper really targets only the originalist claim. Right. The notion that there might be a living constitution, to borrow a fraught phrase, a living constitution, or, or, and to borrow Bode's less charged phrase, there might be some parts of the constitution whose meaning becomes liquidated over time that right. ought to be considered, you know, sort of, if not binding, then sort of strongly um, persuasive to us today. Uh, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to that. In fact, I, I completely buy that theory of constitutional change. What I don't buy is the notion that if you just understand the founders' worldview, uh, that the non-delegation doctrine naturally falls out of that. Um, so, you know, like, and, and put it a different way, in order to demonstrate that there are certain exclusive legislative powers that cannot be delegated, I think originalists need to point to evidence. And there's just not the kind of evidence that they, anywhere to suggest that they had 
any kind of conception that there were exclusive legislative powers. And if they did have that conception, that it was sufficiently well, that, that, that people had really agreed about it. I mean, they were fighting about the Constitution from the moment it was adopted. So, yes, it's possible they, that, that many of the founders harbored in the back of their heads the notion that there were some kinds of laws that if Congress adopted them, might go too far and might even be unconstitutional. But I doubt they would have agreed on what those laws were. I doubt they would have even been able to articulate the objection in quite the terms that we articulate it today. It took a little while for them to become sensitized to these risks. And it was only then that these arguments were made in kind of the, the, their, their fullest voices. Um, so again, like I think it's perfectly okay to have a different, to have a view about the non-delegation doctrine that's informed by sort of principles that get liquidated over time. Uh, I just don't see that as being an originalist argument. But even if it were, I will also add that, you know, again, if, if we're talking about liquidation and we're looking for actual evidence of practice, it's really telling to me that not once over the 18th or 19th or the first 40 years of the 20th centuries that the courts never once struck down an act of Congress on non-delegation grounds. So if there's an argument about liquidation, I think it cuts the other direction, not again, not in favor of the doctrine. Now, uh, as I mentioned, Professor Elon Worman from Arizona State has uh, posted a, a long essay or a long blog post at, at the Yale Journal on Regulations Notice and Comment blog. So I'd encourage listeners to take a listen to that. He ends by 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 presenting you with a slippery slope question uh, or a slippery slope question about what's the limiting principle here. I'd like to raise that question from a different direction. Uh, you, you point out in your paper, or, or you, you say in your paper, that, that really what we're arguing about is whether powers can be redelegated since they've already been delegated once. Um, and I don't think I'm, I'm unfair in saying your, your basic position is no, there isn't a constitutional limit on the redelegation of power. There is a limit on the alienation of power, um, you know, that can't be revoked, but there isn't a limit on, on the redelegation of power. Uh, thinking about this, I, I, I tried to think outside of the legislative branch and think what this might mean for the other branches, because I don't think you say that this argument is limited to the legislative branch. Stop me at any point if you want to, if I'm mischaracterizing your argument. But the, the two examples that I, I came up with, the sort of the oddball hypotheticals that we professors love, is could the president temporarily redelegate his veto power? to say a justice on the Supreme Court and say uh, for the next five years or until I, I, I reclaim the power, um, Justice Gorsuch has the power to, to veto laws. Or the other example I, I thought is, and obviously it's uh, timely these days, is could the president just delegate his pardon power to one mm -hmm. or several members of Congress, right? Because these would just be redelegations. Um, Obviously, this is far fetched. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't tell you about these in advance. But, but do you have any sort of initial reactions to my oddball hypotheticals? Well, I, I would say first and foremost that I doubt there was a settled original public meaning about those questions. Uh, yeah. My hunch is if, if you polled the founders, if you were somehow able to do that, they would scratch their heads and say, "Huh, I hadn't thought about that." And some of them would say, no, you can't delegate those powers. They've been given to you. And others would say, it's fine if you want to conscript someone who serves at your pleasure to actually help you work through these pardon decisions. 
you know, I think it's it's reasonable, again, to argue that the best way to make sense of the Constitution is to say that certain of those specific powers really ought not be subject to any kind of redelegation. I just don't know that you can say it's an originalist argument. I think yeah. you can say it's a plausible claim. But to, to carry to carry an originalist argument, you either got to point to, to arguments drawn from the text of the Constitution that would be apparent to everybody looking at it. In other words, that we'd all kind of just nod and agree, given the context of the day, um, or inferences that they all shared. And you should find evidence for those. And, you know, again, we just don't see the kind of evidence of a shared commitment to the non-delegation doctrine. Um, mm. And those edge cases, you know, again, I, I don't know, but like my hunch is they wouldn't have either. Now, you start the paper by describing some of the political um, and ideological circumstances surrounding the current debate and giving rise to the current debate. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll end with just a, a brief discussion of this. Um, you, 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 you mentioned Justice Lewis Powell before he was Justice Powell, and he was just Chamber of Commerce lawyer Powell. He writes the memo for the chamber uh, calling for a conservative recalibration of constitutional law, and you describe a few other things. And, of course, the non-delegation doctrine has always been primarily on the more conservative side of these ideological arguments, all the way back to that, that year in 1935 when the court did strike down a couple of laws on the non-delegation doctrine. But, but even then, they weren't exclusively conservative, of course. And in the meantime, there have been some non-conservatives who have raised non-originalist arguments around non-delegation. Mm -hmm. You mentioned John Hart Ely talks about non-delegation in his most famous book, Democracy and Distrust, where he actually suggests that – I have it here – the courts should thus ensure not only that the administrators follow those legislative policy directions that do exist, but also that such directions are given. And his point, given the, the book, was – there can be little point in worrying about the distribution of the franchise and personal political rights, the main subject of his book, unless the other important policy choices are made by elected officials. Hart, he actually makes a very similar argument in the opening lines of his later book, War and Responsibility, where he talks about legislative surrender by Congress to the president. I've always I've always being an admirer of, of John Hart Ely, I've always been drawn to that, but also to Bickle. Bickle in 1972 wrote an essay for Commentary Magazine called War and the Constitution, or sorry, the Constitution and War. And he actually goes on for a full paragraph in defense of the non-delegation doctrine. Hmm. These aren't, these aren't originalist arguments, of course, um, but they, they're, they're, they're very different. They're a, a pro-democracy or they're, they're, they're an argument in favor of a certain kind of democracy. You've said that, and you know, your paper makes plain, it's a paper about originalism. And I don't, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot for sort of broader arguments outside of originalism. But if you do have any sort of thoughts on these themes of non-delegation arguments, mm -hmm. I would be curious uh, to, to hear them. Yeah. So there are a bunch of different related criticisms of this line of argument. Um, I'll start kind of most generally is that I think Bickle and John Hart Ely and Skelly Wright, who also takes a similar view and is also not a conservative, we're writing in an era of growing distrust on the left, not only on the right, but on the left for governance. Uh, I think there was real uh, kind of blowback against the Nixon administration, the rise of the Vietnam War, hyperinflation. There was a lot of just the civil rights movement and the, the, the sort of uh, the, the tone of the times was not to trust the institutions that were in charge of the country. And 
I think those themes found expression in some of those writers. Um, I think I disagree with, with the argument at bottom because I think that the choice to delegate power is itself an important policy choice. There are all sorts of ways you can structure your affairs. One is to do everything yourself and the other is to delegate a lot. And both are choices that the Congress can make. Both are choices that Congress can be held accountable for. I think that a lot of what we are worried about today when it comes to delegation is not so much delegation per se, but but a lot of the deeper infirmities of Congress that make it difficult for Congress to legislate about anything. Yeah. And those problems are deep and they're pathological, but it's not something that the non-delegation doctrine is going to solve. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is that even if you agree with Ely and Wright and Bickle, there's still that ineradicable line drawing, line drawing problem. And that was that was why Justice Scalia voted to not enforce the non-delegation doctrine in American trucking, because he was worried about the inability of courts to draw defensible lines between those things that Congress can delegate and those things that it can't. And those problems can't be wished away. And I don't think there's any defensible way to draw them. And so I think what you're likely to see if you brought the non-delegation doctrine back is not a reinvigoration of American democracy. Far from it. Yeah. I think what you'd see instead are courts opportunistically striking down laws that they find distasteful for reasons that probably on the margins and maybe not just on the margins would be inflected by, frankly, political and maybe even partisan considerations. And I just don't think that's an appropriate role for the courts. Uh, you know, my own view is that we have done far too much in our American legal culture to constrain and fetter the 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 federal government and state governments. And I think that's at the root of a lot of our problems. And I think it's one of the reasons that that people thrill to calls from President Trump and President Sanders that are soon to be perhaps President Sanders, that they can come in and just fix everything to achieve our collective goals. And I, you know, I wish our system worked so that we wouldn't have to call for a social revolution or a strongman to come and cure our ills. Now, you mentioned just real quick, you mentioned Scalia and the line drawing problem that he identified in Whitman. Scalia, before he was a justice, back when he was just a lowly law professor and, and think tanker, he wrote an essay uh, about an early case called the benzene case uh, where, where he, you, you quote a little bit of it um, where he says that, that the non-delegation doctrine has acquired a renewed respectability. It might be worth hewing from the ice. But in that essay, too, Scalia actually is very skeptical in the end of the non-delegation doctrine precisely because of the line drawing question. This is one that's troubled me in that essay that I posted um, mm -hmm. equating it to uh, the non-delegation doctrine to, to perhaps the arguments about the partisan gerrymandering issue, which I know is an analogy that you've never been, uh, or at least when I first mentioned it to you a long time, you know, <laughs> a long time, you weren't convinced about it then. Maybe we can relitigate that on a, on a different podcast. Yeah. But on the broader point of this question about Congress and its functioning, for me, one of the troubling things about the non-delegation doctrine in its weak form, I see it as weak form, is, is that I actually think the non-delegation doctrine itself might be a cause of a lot of the dysfunction in Congress. Because Congress has delegated away so much power, it really changes – or it, it, let me put it in less tendentious terms. Because Congress has authorized agencies to do so much, 
that changes the political circumstances around Congress and inside of Congress. It changes the calculus that when it comes to whether Congress is going to spend time on oversight versus new legislation. It also changes the po political coalitions surrounding further legislative efforts. Once you've delegated to the president or his agencies significant discretion to make new policy, it makes it, I think, harder for Congress to undo that work. It's not that Congress says we're never going to return to these issues, but I think as a practical matter, that might be the upshot. I sketched this out in another little blog post at, at the Hoover Institution's Defining Ideas website about a year ago. You know, presidents often say, because Congress won't act, I will. I worry that maybe the problem is because presidents act, Congress won't. And that if we're stuck in some sort of Nash equilibrium or some sort of cul-de-sac we can't get out of, it might take a more uh, reinvigorated non-delegation doctrine to nudge Congress back into a more functional position. Now, that, too, is not an originalist argument. It's it's much more I, – I, I think of it much more in line with what Bickle and John Hart Ely were trying to achieve. But, again, it doesn't go to the, the points that you raise or, or criticize in your article. Yeah, I mean, I'll be clear, like, that's my, my key claim here is about what the founders thought back in 1789. On your arguments today, I think I see it differently. I, I think there's no way to kind of unwind the delegation tape and restore Congress to a world in which it wouldn't have to, you know, deal with the coalitions that arise, the inertia that's built into the system. Like, that, and in fact, they'd, there'd be different coalitions and a different kind of inertia if what Congress had done was nothing. Right? There's no way to get around the fact that there is a kind of path dependence baked into the American legal system. And you're doubtless right that by delegating power at time one, Congress may relieve some of the pressure to address an urgent social problem at time two. But I'm not sure that's a good argument in favor of the non-delegation doctrine, which, after all, exists not to sort of get Congress. It doesn't really have the effect of getting Congress to do something. What it does in practice is take a law away from Congress that it enacted. It says, hey, this thing you did, that's not good enough. And I think that kind of arbitrary, and I think it would be arbitrary, arbitrary judicial interference in the work of the legislature stands to do more damage to our democracy and to the ability to, to actually get things done than um, you know, allowing Congress to feel its way forward and by trial and error, try to get it right. Well, Nick, the paper that you wrote with uh, Professor Mortensen has obviously given people a lot to think about. We're going to continue to debate these things. We'll be seeing you at an upcoming Cray Center workshop to talk about these things. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the podcast and discuss these issues. I'm very happy to be here, Adam. Thanks for the invitation. Great. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again next time for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. Music.